Hello, and uh, welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. Uh, I am Rusty Gwynn, and I am joined, as always, by my partner, Dr. Ben Hunt. Hey, Rusty. And uh, today's focus will be uh, on the COVID-19 pandemic and where we stand here in mid-January 2021. Uh, I think Ben and I have both been thinking quite a lot about um, some of the newer developments that we've seen coming out of, uh, out of Ireland, the United Kingdom, and South Africa, uh, and uh, want to talk a little bit about what that means for uh, the United States, uh, and for some of those countries as well. So Ben, I know this is something that's been on your mind a lot. So I may just turn it over to you first to, uh, to talk about how you have been thinking about how COVID numbers in particular have been massaged, manipulated and yeah. used and, and how this interacts with that. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're right, Rusty. I mean, really for the past year, I mean, we are coming up on a year now where I've just been consumed by the fact that COVID numbers are used and manipulated to, to, to create these political narratives. We started looking at it in the, the case of China, and that was really where we, we, we first started writing about COVID and what we saw happening in the world, despite the political narratives that were coming around this. Well, and in fact, uh, it, it, was, it was actually how we came upon COVID-19 in the first place Yep. was actually through our, our running of political news through our, our, our narrative machine in particular. The very first finding that we published was an observation that there was a, an emerging narrative in U.S. media of just the flu mm-hmm. in mid to late January. And so the, 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 the narrative component of this story about COVID really, I mean, it, it, isn't, it hasn't just been there all along. I mean, it was the the, the reason why we began covering, um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we started with that indication from, from our narrative work, went into analysis of the numbers that were coming out of China and the way those were being you know, created, basically, my view, to, to then the narratives around the World Health Organization, to then the don't test, don't tell fiasco here in the United States. Uh, and, you know, like say for the last 12 months, it's been my kind of personal windmill to tilt at this, this, what I like to call COVID trutherism, you know, in all, in all its different forms. I love how you use the singular of windmill as if there's this world in which you only <laughs> tilt at one mill, windmill at a time. Ben. Yeah, well, well, this has been a big one. It's been a big windmill. But uh, look, last week, I became consumed again by, by a different twist on this, which was COVID numbers, again, I like to start with numbers, uh, that, that I thought weren't being manipulated or, or used for some political narrative, but were being ignored. Uh, you know, insane infection numbers coming out of the UK and Ireland, you know, apparently driven by a, a new strain of the virus, this B117 strain, that we acknowledged over here Right, that we acknowledge there's oh there's this new strain and you know boy ain't it awful what's happening in 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 the UK and Ireland and most mostly I, I think we we focused on when we were looking at it in the news the coverage focused on the 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 shutting down of of air travel between the United Kingdom and in certain countries in Europe and at least as as I recall our analysis of the of the news flow even to the extent that it was covered it was mostly in context of, of kind of commerce and, 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 and yeah. Travel. Yeah. And, you know, shutting down air travel. No, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't cutting down the flights. It was, Oh, you need to have a test, you know, two right. days before, before you fly. 
I mean, you can get a flight in and out of, you know, Heathrow today yeah. from, from JFK, which is nuts, but, but, you know, that's, that's, that's a topic I think we'll cover <laughs> kind of later on this podcast, but, but yeah, you're right. My point was that, or my observation was that we saw all this and we just didn't seem to be too, you know, mussed up about it. Oh yeah. Look over there. And it reminded me for all the world of what, you know, the situation was in Italy last February, where time after time, Europe has been our crystal ball. And what, we're, we're just going to, to, to ignore that again? So that's, that's what really got me and by crystal, riled up. By crystal ball, what you're, you're referring to is how Italy really was that emerging hotspot post-Wuhan that preceded the, the New York metro that's area right. hotspot, you know, somewhat. It was really 30 days lag, 45 days, something like that. Yeah, not even 45. It was yeah. more like a 30-day lag. And it was like, oh, yeah, ain't it awful what's happening over in Italy? And, oh, yeah, you know, we all have all these 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 travelers back and forth from Italy. And, uh, gosh, people are getting sick on Long Island. I'm sure it's nothing. It, it, and it just – it. sorry, I do get riled up about this stuff. Um, it, it has been a, a windmill to tilt at for, for, for a year now. But I just – suspected that we're seeing the same thing happening over again because when i when i talk about insane infection numbers coming out of of uk and ireland i mean we're talking about a 30x spike in covid numbers just over a span of of like two weeks the last two weeks of december over in ireland where their public health people they're talking about that that there are number you know, the, the, the basic reproductive rate of the virus going from something around, you know, 1.2 to maybe something as high as 3.0, which is, again, as I think we'll, we'll talk about later in the podcast, that's in, that is insane. That it is. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. Yeah. But, you know, when I, when I saw those numbers for the first time, I'll tell you, my, my instinct is, is to think about it in the same way that it would about, you know, other let's say island countries that have mm-hmm. a peculiar ability to control, um, you know, the you know, ins and outs from a travel perspective and that have a unique ability to control the virus. And we, when we think about the countries that have done the best job of limiting the spread of COVID-19, it is not exclusively a list of island nations, but it is certainly the case that, that nations with those, that ability to control ins and outs, I'm thinking of Taiwan, Hong mm-hmm. Kong to a lesser extent, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, and to some extent, Ireland are, are, are countries that have some ability to control that. And, and so my instinct was when, when I see a, a 30x jump and when I see a, a you know, three re- reproductive rate, right? What I think of in both of those cases is low base level, right? Where we're starting from a, a very low base and all of a sudden it's, it's the behavioral component of a, of a country that hasn't had to you know, you become very familiar with, I think, the very restrictive behaviors that, that you know, are, are necessary to curtail the spread because they've, they've had some of these natural protections of being an island country. And so when I saw that three on the R0, I, I, I guess my assumption was that, well, this has got to just be behavioral. Well, it, it, and it's both, right? And this is, this is the point of why I wanted to, to write this note and have this podcast it is both behavioral, and we can talk about the specifics of the, the, the Irish case, and the new variant. It's both. Okay. Right? Bo- bo- both of these things are responsible for, the, for this, this big spike. My question, though, was 
could what happen in Ireland, because look, the Ireland is not, you know, nearly as, let's call it isolated, right? It, you know, no as, question. As, you know, New Zealand no. or something, something like that, right? Uh, but, but one of the things that I really had to, to figure out in trying to determine, could we have an Ireland event here in the United States was just what you're describing, right? Right. What, what actually happened in Ireland yeah. that, that was responsible for this 30X spike in cases where they went from having a few hundred cases a day to having 6,000 cases a day. And this, the, and just to give some sense of the size, right? So, so Ireland has a population of right at 5 million, which is the same population as my home state of Alabama. So that's the, the scale we're talking about here. By the way, Alabama right now is averaging about 4,000 cases a day. And today in the last three days have had, you know, more than 180 deaths reported from COVID each, each day. So it, it, it hits home for me, these questions of, A, are we already experiencing, I'll call it Ireland events regionally here in the United States, but can it get worse with the introduction of this new variant? Yeah, and and it seems to me that you've got sort of four four variables that you have to to understand whether whether Ireland acts as a consistent model, right? You you have the the effect in that R zero that comes from the actual strain of the virus and mm-hmm. the, the fundamental characteristics of it from a from a biological perspective. Yep. Two, you've got the the behavioral elements, right. and, and 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 we're using that in a, you're painting a very broad brush, I think, because. Within behavior, we're not just talking about personal behavior. We're also talking about policy, policy. behavior, yep. right? And and yep. you know restrictions on travel and all those types of things that that influence it. I think the the third dimension is going to be the extent to which the immunity level that's already established in the population, or the amount of the population which has some you know amount of antibodies or, or protection mm-hmm. against it because of mm-hmm. pre existing. Uh, infections in that area and the extent to which that differs between, let's say, an Alabama and an Ireland. And then I think kind of fourth is the actual thing that drives the conditional probability of all that, which is what are the odds that a a sufficient stock of that strain is introduced to a particular region, right? I mean, I I think that kind of covers. No, that that covers around it. And I'd really like to look to talk about all four of those, I'll call them categories or things that you got to come to a conclusion on or at least have some insight on before you can come to a conclusion about could we see, and I don't mean an Ireland event across the entire United States, but I'm really talking about a rolling series of of Ireland events, because I do think the way to think about the United States is not as, you know, a single Island country, right. But as a lot of geographies, most of them state-based, but even kind of say in the case of California, you know, Southern California is different from Northern California. Uh, I'll call it kind of regional or or, or state-based geographic, um, you know, aggregations yeah. of of COVID events, right? But but you're right. I do want to start with the virus itself. This this B one one seven variant, this this uh, UK variant. Let, let, let's call it. So. The, the the most recent information I've seen on this, and this this came out of uh, Public Health England uh, last weekend, so call it, you know, January tenth or so. This the or eleventh. That would be the 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 last information that that I've been looking at. You know, they, they've had enough cases now 
with this UK variant that they've been able to to put together some, I'll call it uh, diagnostics on, you know, how it affects different age groups, uh, what the, the transmission rate is versus what they call the wild strain, the, the original, the base, I'll call it the baseline COVID, COVID strain. And here's the skinny. The skinny is that by and large, it's anywhere from, call it a third more infectious to a little more than 40% uh, more infectious. Meaning that you catch it, it's not more dangerous to you, right? The, or at least there's no evidence. There, there's no evidence, right? There's, there's no evidence right. that, it, that, it, that it hits you harder than the baseline um, virus. But there's enormous evidence that it's easier to acquire, right? And, 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 and frankly, some of the, the, the differences, so what, what the UK do, does is they make a distinction between what they call direct contacts, which are face-to-face, uh, you know, typically physical contact. So uh, a family, uh, a partner, you know, they, they talk about that as, as, you know, in the home, essentially. Which have been the, the most, you know, most consistent vectors of transmission. That's I right. Think, in most of the studies, you know, in, in almost every country. That's right. And, yeah. and that, so that's for the, for the baseline virus, that's been the biggest vector. And, and, and it, I think it just makes sense. That would be the biggest vector or transmission mechanism for the virus period. And it is more infectious in these direct contacts. The fact is, the baseline virus is incredibly infectious in these direct contact scenarios. So what you see is typically in the, the UK data about a 30% increase in infectiousness, even in the, those direct contacts. But where you really see a much more marked infectiousness with the UK variant is not in the direct contacts. Yes, it's more infectious, about 30% more infectious. You know, on top of something that's already crazy infectious. But you really see the difference in this new variant with what they call the close contacts. So close contacts don't require a face-to-face contact, right? You could be, you know, you've got double seats that face the other way on like a bus right. or, or, you know, maybe a, a, a train or something like that. So you're not facing face-to-face, but you're within six feet of each other. Uh, or maybe you are face to face, but you've got you know a mask on, uh, but you're 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 and you're three feet away from the person or four feet away from the person, and you're there for like a minute. That would qualify as a as a close contact. So these are the the contacts we would typically have outside of the home. You know, going to the grocery store, right? Right? Or 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 you know, working in a grocery store. Okay, so I mean, I, I'm I, neither of us, of course, are, are epidemiologists, but I mean. Right. The implication of that, at least to me, and and and, and again, I, I don't have any evidence of this. I'm saying implication, right? Is that it is capable of delivering more viral load through aerosol transmission? I mean, that that seems to me to be the implication. Well, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily aerosol transmission, right? But there is, but there is something about this virus because it's more than forty percent more infectious uh, than the baseline. Okay. With these close contacts, right? So thirty percent more infectious with our our direct contacts more than 40% more infectious with close contacts in the baseline. However, the new variant does it, right? You're absolutely right. It is, it is, it is finding a way to, to bridge that air gap 
between people who are only in close contact right. rather than direct contact. Now, you know, whether that's the fact that it can promulgate or, you know, needs a, a smaller droplet size, let's say, right, that could go farther and is less blocked by, uh, you know, paper mask, cloth mask and the like, I, do, we don't know. But, but, but whatever it is, it's bridging that air gap more effectively than the, um, than the baseline. So altogether, that increase in infectivity would take, you know, what the, the, R, the R0 from, or R0 from, from. Yeah. And this, this is where it gets scary, right? Because, well, because it, and, and this is why I think it's difficult to have a, a, a good sense as a, as the human animal of what an exponential function means. I mean, we're, we live in a linear world, right? Yeah. And we've, we've evolved as linear creatures. We don't deal with, you know, microbial populations you know, in, our, in, our, in our real world lives. That's where Tesla investors. And- and like, yeah, 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 exactly. But, but, but just kind of put numbers around this. The, uh, the, the, the Irish uh, public health authorities were estimating that before this spike, their, I'll call it the effective R number. And it's probably not worth it to get into the differences and distinction between what they call R naught, the the true kind of basic reproductive number, which assumes that the po- the entire population is susceptible. What what they were talking about in Ireland was what they were calling the the, the effective R number, meaning okay, let's just look at the numbers about who how people are actually getting infected, and let's you know calculate what R number would deliver those results. Those so, effective results. I mean, so by definition, I mean the effective rate should always be lower, lower, lower than the R naught because number. it's 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 not it's not relying correct. on a very friendly to a higher number assumption. Absolutely, regarding the, absolutely correct. Yeah. So what I'm describing to you, and this is what makes it really frightening, and why I got pretty agitated about what the potential was for these sort of events in the United States, is they're talking about the effective R number, and just so we understand what the R number means. Right, an, an R number of two means that someone who's infected with COVID, they are going to pass that along to two more people. And obviously, you see these numbers like, like Ireland was saying, we thought our effective R number was one point two. Now, obviously, one person can't pass it along to a 0.2 person, right? Right. But we're talking about population. So, so on average, an R number of 1.2 would mean that one person who's infected is going to spread that to 1.2 new people. Which and, is growth. Which is growth. And, and so that, but, but it's like, well, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? But this is the power of exponential growth. Uh, and the power of exponential growth, depending on kind of how many times you cycle that one goes to 1.2, the numbers get enormously large really quickly. And so just to take a numerical example, let's say the, and again, as you were describing, I think accurately, Ireland wasn't having a hard time with COVID before this spike at the, the, the end of December. I, I mean, when they're saying there's some growth, you know, the number is 1.2. So it's spreading. 
but it's actually spreading not that quickly. It's, you know, a population of 5 million people. They're getting a couple hundred new cases every day. All right. Man, it, relatively speaking, manageable, yes. right? So let's take, you know, and I think if you look at the numbers here in the U.S., I, my sense is kind of our baseline is more like 1.4. I think it's you know higher than that in a place like Southern California, but let's take 1.4 to give you an example of just the the numbers we're talking about. Here. Sure. Yeah. So let's take a a 40 percent increase from 1.4. So the that the that R number of 1.4 now becomes 2.0. In that 1.4 example, over a hundred days, where I'm as I'm assuming the the cycle here is every fifth day. Because that's you, you, typically you, you spread it to someone in that period of time before you become symptomatic. So it takes, call it two days for you to, to, to get develop the viral load yourself. And then you've basically got three days for to, to pass it on to someone else or more than one someone else um, before you get symptomatic and you basically shut yourself down from, from, from spreading so dramatically. So in that original scenario I gave you of a of a of a an effective R number of 1.4, over that hundred day period, one single person with COVID would create a little more than 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 2,000 total infections, 20 you know 2,500 call it 2,500 total infections. Okay. Over that hundred day period. Now let's take that, that, that R number from 1.4 to 2.0. That one starting case of COVID, it becomes 2 million cases. This, this is the power of exponential growth. And so small differences in that transmission number, that R number, make enormous differences when it comes to how quickly and, and how broadly the virus spreads. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow is right. Right. And so when I say to you that, that, that Ireland was saying, we think our effective R number might've been three. I, I mean, that those numbers become insane I, again, you know, and now it becomes a logistic process where, where you're actually running into you know, it's no longer Correct. exponential math. It's no longer exponential math. And and this is true for all of what I'm saying. These numerical examples are just that numerical examples to give people a sense of how sensitive the spread of the virus is to what, what really seems like, oh, you know, 1.4 to 2.0. That doesn't sound like a big change. It's It's an insane change in what happens in real life, uh, with a virus in, in, in a population. So, you know, that's why I was getting agitated again. And, and, and so this gets to kind of, that's, that's the virus. And now we have to look at, at your question about, well, what about, you know, what was actually happening in terms of behavior in Ireland, both before and after, and, and how applicable is that to the United States? Yeah. So what, what you saw in Ireland was that to, to control the virus, to keep it at that, call it 1.2 effective R number, they've had mask and social distancing policy countrywide, nationwide, for months now. Um, 
you know, that it's it's not it's not an optional thing. They they haven't had uh, I'll call it hard lockdown, but they've had restrictions on you know indoor dining, you know, and uh, the like I say mask wearing for sure, mandatory mask wearing uh, in public. Um, you know, social distancing requirements as, as they can. Yeah, I mean, it, there were there were stories, I think, at the same time we were seeing these things in the United States of, you know, pubs in Ireland figuring out ways to uh, sell a, a bag of chips for, you yes. know, <laughs> for, uh, for 50 euro uh, and then, you know, you can buy a uh, And all a, you can drink. Yeah, right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, it's the same thing in, in New York, right? You know, or or... What is a meal? What counts as a meal, right? Is a, it a, is a, is a hot dog a meal? <laughs> you right. know, things, things like that. But you know, all joking and kidding aside, what the government of Ireland decided was we're going for, for the holidays, for the Christmas holidays, we're basically going to give everyone a pass. <laughs> so they, is that right? I oh, yeah. I didn't realize Oh, that. yeah. Yeah. So they, they ratcheted down all of the policy restrictions for those last two weeks. Obviously a lot of, 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 of um, Irish citizens work abroad. A lot of them work abroad over in the UK and a lot of them come home for the holidays. I've seen some estimates that, you know, up to, you know, 17% of Irish citizens work abroad. And, and a lot of those are coming back home for those holidays at exactly the time where the government announced, okay, last two weeks of the year, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have restrictions. So what you, what you saw in Ireland was not just a, you know, introduction of the UK variant from people who work in the UK coming home for the holidays, but at the same time, you saw a real policy shift that really allowed people to become that much more lax in terms of gatherings, um, you know, mask wearing, social distancing and the like. So when you look at what, what the, the, the public health group ascribes or attributes this dramatic increase in that effective R number two, it is both being lax with these behavioral aspects of COVID, gathering together in groups not wearing your mask, not um, following social distance guidelines, and the introduction of that UK variant virus directly into into. Ireland. So I'm assuming then that what you're referring to in the 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 gap between 2.1 and the the three, which you then mentioned, is attributable then to these behavioral measures. Yeah, and 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 of course, you know, with all these kind of R numbers, there's no there's no perfect way to say, oh, this was from that or right. this was from this, right? But, but the, what, what, what they're thinking, what they're thinking in Ireland is that of the increase in, in uh, infections, the, in the spike, let's attribute, I don't know, a third, maybe as much as 40% to the new variant and the rest let's attribute to the lax uh, or the not following the, the the sort of standards that they had prior to that. Now, of course, what they're doing now is that they are you know, imposing those standards and more, and you know, and, and, and trying to do some other things as well that we can talk about in terms of controlling the the spread, containing the spread of the of, of the UK variant. But so you know, you put that together with the US, 
And clearly we are still on the earlier stages of the introduction of the UK variant than Ireland was, right? But recall, yeah, this time they saw this explosion the last two weeks of December. So, you know, we're now two weeks into January. And my sense is that because, you know, travel hasn't been stopped between the US and, and the UK, uh, because we now see this UK variant in 11 states in the, United, in, the, in the US, because like just yesterday, there were 12 new UK variant cases just in New York state. It's here, it's here. We're, we're, we're not as far along on this path as Ireland was, which is why I wanna talk about what's the potential for that sort of Ireland event to occur here. Yeah, and I mean, just to abstract a little bit, yeah, because I don't want to be excessively precise, like focusing on these specific R right. numbers, right? I mean, if we think about uh, if the if the true sort of tendency with a normal behaviors in Ireland was 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 two point two point one even under some restrictions, I mean, I think well, no, 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 one point two. I thought that was the base rate. The base the, rate. The base rate. I'd say yes, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying of this new strain, right? oh, okay, the idea okay. is to right. I mean, leaving the numbers aside, what right, right, right. What right, we're right. functionally talking about is something that if you're going into a public place on a regular basis over a sufficiently long period, you're very likely to contract that strain of the virus. I mean, that seems yeah. to be the implication, right? Of, yeah. Of that level yeah. Of yeah. The, the, way, the way I would interpret it is this. For close contact transmission, you know, casual contacts outside of the home, our, anyone's margin of safety by following social distancing guidelines, wearing a mask, which, as you know, doesn't protect you, but it, it, it cuts down on the droplets that an infected person would pass along to someone else, right? Wearing a mask is not, or a non-medical respirator mask is not gonna protect you. The goal is to protect other people if you are in fact pre-symptomatic and can pass it along through, through, through droplets. I think it's fair to say, and this is what I mean by COVID fatigue, we've all gotten a little lax with mask wearing to an extent outside of the home, but much more so social distancing. Yeah. And, and so what I'm describing is, is, a, is a new variant that reduces that margin of safety it, or margin of error or whatever you want to call it with mask wearing and social distancing outside of the home. Well, and it also sort of obliges us to look at those other dimensions where if, we're, if we're using it, uh, if we're using Ireland as the baseline, how, how do we differ? Well, we, we differ in a few ways. As, as, as you point out, there's, there may be differences in, in that behavioral component, but in both directions, I would say, number one, right? And number two is that there is a difference in the, the portion of the population which has developed antibodies or some form of immunity and, and would not, you know, would not be part of that, that group that would be contracting and then passing on the virus. And yeah. then, and then yeah. there's the, the sort of geographical constraints that we have, you know, in, in being a, a ge geographically far flung, flung country and that, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be something we would experience at a national level all at once. And there may be some implications for um, how we respond to in, you know, interstate 
travel and you know the the capacity that that has to to pass on the uh, the spread of the virus. So absolutely those seem like right. the, the dimensions that we're looking at, right? A- a- absolutely right. And and I and I think the way that comes together is that we've already seen here in the United States, I think a similar <laughs> lax laxer attitude towards the social behaviors. Right. And, and, and that is what I think drove or Ireland believes drove most of their spike. I, I think that's why, for example, Alabama, without the new variant, has 4000 cases a day. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, without the new variant, Alabama is pretty, you know, again, same population size is pretty close to the spike levels of Ireland. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, our effective R number in a state like Alabama is not 1.2. It's already up there. <laughs> like, I don't know that if it's a, it, it's as high as two, but it's, it's, it's getting close to it. It's getting close to it. And my concern is that in whether it's Alabama or whether it's, it's, it's other states where that now much more infectious variant is now in place, like Texas, like California, like Florida, like Illinois, like New York, like Connecticut. My concern is that you combine the lax behavioral standards where mask wearing is seen like a, you know, a a speed limit, (laughs) you know, not, not, not that something to not ignore, but something to flout basically when you feel like it or if you like you can get away with it. And certainly that's true for social distancing. Yeah. And certainly that's true for, uh, I'll say, group gatherings. Yeah. Right? I think we're already there on those, those lax standards. And then you, you, you put a 40% more infectious variant on top of that. That's what gives me concern about these 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 rolling series of, of of Ireland events, of which I think we're kind of already halfway there. Well, and, and I want to be clear too that this is not a, a throwing stones thing. I feel that way. I, yes, I, I, I I'm tired of being locked in my house, and and I and and, and I and when I'm doing that evaluation, mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about, you know. Is you know maybe let's just let's just have one you know let's just go do a meal in a restaurant yeah the the number of days that I'm you know willing to let go by before I make that decision to go into a restaurant that has a a significant number of people and stay in there for an hour and a half having a meal that 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 comes into my mind a lot more easily so th- there's definitely no stones being thrown in the air here it's a it's it is a it is a very natural psychological response that I think we've all been going through for the last year we all feel it we all feel it and. This is what gives me real pause because we are all feeling it. We all know that our behaviors are changing, particularly our behaviors around casual contacts, close contacts, particularly around our behaviors where being more lax is coming at just the wrong time yeah. for the introduction of this more infections. In, the, in, in very much the same way that it did in Ireland. But- I guess my question is twofold and you may be going this direction already. One of which is unlike Ireland, we did have and have had pretty significant outbreaks of, of the original strain of the virus. You know, I think Mm -hmm. most, I think specifically about the New York Metro area and 
I, I, this is not just anecdotal, but I'll, I'll share it anecdotally, and, and I know that the, da the, the, the data supports it. The, the first infection was very deep, and in this most recent you know, outbreak across the country, the New York metro areas absolutely had an increase in cases. It certainly had a, a spike in hospitalizations, but it was on a completely different scale and a completely different dimension, different dimension to what came before. Mm -hmm. And we know that a portion of that is, is behavioral, but we also know that a portion of that is related to the number of people that have developed and have some form of immunity or resistance to, yep. to the virus. And so how much, how much hope can we take from that, that, you know, in, in a lot of these areas, we've already, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use terms like herd immunity, but right. it's a continuum. And and clearly there is some some scale of immunity that's been established in a lot of these regions that we would be concerned about. That's right. Because as you increase the, I'll call it the pool or decrease the pool of potential infections, obviously these exponential functions we were talking about before, they're no longer exponential functions. Or at least um, they become exponential at a lesser order and become somewhat more like a linear. That's right. That, 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 that's exactly right. And so that question, which is basically, well, how many people have effective protection today from some prior exposure to, 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 to COVID? How many of those people are in the United States? And, and I think this is exactly why, to date, from a policy perspective, certainly from the CDC's perspective, you haven't seen a lot of alarm bells going off. And when I described that we, we've noted, oh, yeah, they've got that variant over there in the UK and Ireland, but you know, we don't seem to be too worked up about it. I, I think it's really driven by, in my view, the model that the CDC has for this question you're asking, you know, what is the, the effective immunization, <laughs> the effective protection right. against this new variant in the United States, the model that the CDC is using, again, my view, it's a politically motivated model, uh, politically motivated in the sense that the result of the model that the CDC is using, which suggests that well more than 100 million people in the United States already have protection against COVID. Which is roughly three times the number that have tested positive and have actually received immunizations. Because I think there's what, about 23 million are prob probable and, and, and tested positive. And then you know the, the balance would be those who have actually gone through at least one phase of the immunization. So their, their model essentially assumes somewhere between three and four times that have actually had it the in the past. Right, right. Right. And what they're, what they're, so to put that into numbers, what they're, what the CDC models, and we'll talk about the models in a second and why I think it's a political motivation to, to use the numbers that they're using. The CDC models on current infection are saying that about 70 to 80 million Americans had symptomatic COVID, meaning they got sick and they knew they were sick and brushed it off. Said, eh, I'm not going to get tested. I'm not going to, you know, think I'm going to, eh, it's a, it's, it's just a bad cold. I'll just brush it off. Well, which was the guidance from the CDC for some period of time as the, the proper <laughs> yeah. action to take, I think. Well, in the spring, there is no, I have no doubt 
that there are millions of people in the United States, particularly in the areas in the spring where it hit really hard at first, yeah. where people said, okay, I have just got to live with it. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get over it. I, I don't know how many millions of people that that would be. My guess is, is it's, you know, a couple of tens of millions. Yeah. Force me to give you a number. I'll say, I bet there are 25 million Americans, 25 million Americans who have said, you know what? I'm sick with it. I'm not going to get tested. I'm just going to try to ride it out. Okay, so what, what, let's let's get to exactly sort of the argument relative to the CDC saying there's 100 million people who've developed some form of immunity. Are you saying you think that number is high, low, or that you don't know? I, I, no. Well, no one knows. The CDC doesn't know, and I don't know, right? The number that the CDC is, the, the, the reason, let me put it, put it this way, the reason the CDC says the, the number they're giving for people who had symptoms but said, ah, it's just about, I'll, I'll work it, I'll, I'll just brush it off, is based on the data and the models they have for seasonal flu. It's not based on, oh, let's, let's actually find out what are people's behavior when they have COVID. It's not based on, oh, well, let me do some, you know, seroprevalence test of this area to see, you know, how many people have the antibodies and we'll kind of work backwards from that for asymptomatic cases, because that's another group that would have the protection, but wouldn't, you know, be counted as, as a case, right? Let's, let's not do any actual kind of, I'll, I'll call it evidence-based work to try to figure out what that number is. No, no. Let's go back to the websites we have where people can, where we, we, we ask people what flu-like symptoms you had in, you know, the, the fall of, of, you know, 2017 and did you actually then go to get tested for flu my view and this is why i think their number is too high is that our behavior with covid it ain't like our behavior with a freaking flu that yeah i believe that you know one out of four people who actually had the flu only one out of four people who actually had the flu in the, you know, the fall of 2017 went in to get a test and say, yeah, I've got flu. And by the way, this is why all these these numbers you see, like, you know, every year 30,000 people get the flu. That's a model. Yeah. That's, that's totally a model. They're, they're ascribing a much larger number than the number who actually got tested and said, yeah, I've got the flu. So my view is that it is, I'll call it, I mean, I believe this, an intentional operationalization to use flu data and flu behavioral data, ascribe it to COVID behaviors, because what you get out of this, if if you can show, if you can claim that, oh, there are, you know, 100 million Americans who have had COVID but just brushed it off or were asymptomatic. What that then means is that your infectious infection fatality rate, the real, you know, bottom line danger of COVID is dramatically reduced. Right. So that's why you get a number like the, you know, at the, at these that you'll see published where, well, on the aggregate across all different age groups, there's only a, the, the CDC says is only a, 
0.27% chance that you'll die if you catch COVID. That number relies on the model. The model. Yeah. This, this saying, oh, people have treated COVID like they treat the flu. And so we've got 100 million people here as our denominator, not, you know, 25 or 30 million people as, as, as our denominator. Now, I, like I say, I think there are actually tens of millions of people who have had, the, have had COVID, who have the antibodies, who had it asymptomatically. I don't think it's 130 million or whatever the, the, you know, the total amount would be for, for, from the CDC. Right. And, and I mean, not least because I think it isn't just the difference in the severity of the illness that, you know, that I would say, or the fact that we're all calling this a pandemic right. that would cause people to go in and say, yeah, actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm much more likely to get tested than I would be if I've experienced the flu whenever yep. everyone's not telling me there's a pandemic and all that. You know, the, 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 the contrarian side of that would say, yes, but there's also a very large population that, you know, is, is a potential spreader population in, in people who are under the age of 14 who have demonstrated, you know, less, less likelihood of, of becoming symptomatic. And so, you know, I don't know how much that offsets that. So, but where it leads me is to say, I don't have any reason to believe or disbelieve the, 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 the model from the CDC. I don't know if I'm as confident that at what level that I might say that the, the, the true number that, that have that immunity is less. It seems reasonable to me to believe it. It also seems reasonable to me to think about there being a meaningful risk, right? Yeah. And as we think about this, there being a meaningful risk that in fact, the number of people who have developed that immunity is materially less than 100. And as, as we talk about, you know, the, that transformation of, of R0 to effective yep. R, right? Yep. If, if, if you're talking about 100 million people having had it versus 60 million people having had it, well, that's a really meaningful, you know, if, if you're thinking about the probability that, that someone right. you're in contact with is, is immune, you know, that's taking it from a one in three chance, you know, if it's, you know, 100 million people having had it, if it, you know, having that immunity versus if it's 60 million, yep. that being a 20% chance. Correct. You know that that the person has it, and that's that's a that's a really meaningful it, difference. It it is a meaningful difference. I want to go back to something you said though about you know how it breaks down across age groups. So the CDC actually does break it down by age groups. You know, to your initial kind of right. you know, the first question you have, and the 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 lion's share of those cases that the CDC believes oh people had it symptomatically and just brushed it off are in the whatever it is you know. 24 to 48 age group, right? right? So, so well more than, uh, you know, something like two thirds of that, you know, 70, 80 million people are coming from that age group, right? In, in, in the CDC models. I don't think the CDC models are correct for a couple other reasons. The, the, the first is that if, (laughs) if you really thought these models were true, then this would become an enormously important variable for you to incorporate in your vaccination policy. Right. Enormously. Because otherwise, otherwise you are, you are wasting (laughs) up to a third of your extremely precious and in short supply, you know, vaccine doses. Yes. And, and it's just, it's it's more than a little odd to me that if you truly believed that a third of Americans already have effective protection, you're not taking that into account when you're thinking about vaccine policy. Right. The the other point I'd raise is that 
when you look at hospitalization data versus cases, again, it seems it seems undeniable to me that there were millions and millions of people, particularly in the tri-state, you know, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey area, that had COVID in the spring and were not counted as a case. Right. Massachusetts, of course, you know, Illinois as well, you know, you know Pennsylvania. I, I have no doubt that there are some, you know, a couple, again, my guess, 30 million people, let's say, that in the spring, in the summer, had it, brushed it off, weren't counted as an official case. But when you look at the hospitalization rate today versus the cases, and, and of course, the, one of the reasons why we, those, those cases weren't diagnosed in the spring and going to summer was how crappy our testing yeah. uh, facilities were right? or, or capacity was. I, when you look at the hospitalization numbers today, I don't, it, it seems impossible to me to reconcile the hospitalization rate on the known cases versus the hospitalization for some modeled 80 million more Americans who got it in the spring and the summer and going and going here right. in the fall. So you take those two things together. And again, I don't think that the, that these, these, these uh, effectively immunized people don't exist. I'm just saying, I think it's like half what, the CDC models it to be. And to your major point, if you take it down from a third of Americans have this effective immunization to 20%, mm-hmm. that changes everything in terms of the effective spread number and whether we could see Ireland events happen in this kind of rolling geographically focused uh, impact in the United States. Well, but even 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 if we assume that the CDC's numbers right, and I, or is, is right, and I haven't done the math on this, but it, it seems that even if you assume the CDC numbers right, the difference in the effective R in Ireland versus the base rate mm-hmm. still exceeds the yes. reduction you would get from a pop, the difference in the population that is that would have even if you assumed everyone still had the antibodies right, right. from the CDC model in that you know 130 million or something like that, you apply that to the probability that you know if you have it you're going to pass it on to someone else. The aggregate effect of that still seems to be me to be less than. It is. The incremental effect on effective R that we observed in Ireland for this new strain. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and what we're seeing in the United States, and again, without the introduction of the UK variant, is that the rate of increase in cases in this fall surge has been twice the rate of increase in cases we saw in the, in the, in the spring and the summer, right? That's, that's from, you know, the coronavirus task force and their latest briefing with, with governors and right. it's what has you know, led people, some, some people to suspect, you know, is there a U.S. variant on this? My guess is no, right? My guess is no, it, it is attributable to COVID fatigue and you know, treating these, you know, masks and especially social distancing as a speed limit. Um, and of course, I mean, we're, 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 of course, generalizing here. Of course, there are other strains, but what we mean yeah. is one that has a identifiable and materially different right, 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 transmission right, right. rate. Right. Exactly right. And so what that leads me then is to, well, what, what can we do to prevent this? And I, here's where we run headlong into, again, the, the nature of exponential growth. 
because, you know, I was giving you that example earlier about where you go from, you know, 2000 cases or 2200 cases to 2 million cases with that R number going from 1.4 to 2.0. Let's, you know, again, just looking at the, 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 the math of an exponential function. And that in that example where you go from one case to 2 million cases at day 30, there, there are only, <laughs> you know, the, there are only a few dozen cases. You know, there are about 100 cases on day 30. Yeah. On day 50, there's 1,000 cases. You know, and in 1,000 cases, it's maybe noticeable. But you're the, you're the governor of a state. You know, are you going to take the dramatic steps that would be necessary to contain the new variant at that stage at day 50? I don't think you are. No. Right? Over a thousand cases? Because think of it this way, even if you were right and you are successful at preventing a catastrophe, if you're successful, the voters, citizens, they'll never know. (laughs) They'll only blame you for, oh my God, you locked us down like this and and it wasn't that bad or it wasn't any different. And it doesn't take into account how bad it could have been. And that's, that's the, the, the political dynamic here that I think prevents us from doing anything to contain the spread of the new variant, which I you know, think could drive a, a whole other leg of this that outstrips our ability to do effective vaccination. And that's just not in any of our thinking about either politics or markets for 2021 well let me push back a little bit okay um and specifically i want to push back on the on both the policy and the geographic dimension and i, and right. I say push back but i don't know that i'm actually pushing back. yeah right right exponential functions are also they're, they're not just sensitive to the to the factor you're applying they're sensitive to extremely sensitive to the amount of time yep which is the, the underlying implication there is that they are path dependent and an exponential spread of something like this is absolutely path dependent on transmission from one concentrated network of human beings to another, right? One mm-hmm. metropolitan, you know, some, some aggregated, you know, population center to, to another. And the other thing that's going on, which is a, a linear function, mm-hmm. a growing linear function, is the immunization that's taking place right now. Yep. And so we don't just have a exponential growth happening in the wild. We have exponential growth happening in a geograph- somewhat geographically constrained network of population centers alongside linear growth yep. in the immunized population. Yep. And so there's, there is a little bit of a race factor here. And I, I, totally. I, I mean, uh, a, a, I mean, a car, like a, a race car race, against not time. a, yes. um, yeah. not racial. Yeah. Um, there is a, a, a race happening between those two things, which leads me to believe that not only would that governor or, you know, let me abstract from governor too, not only would regulators or the government be ill-served from a political sense by pursuing a lockdown everything strategy because it's terrible metagame, the right policy response to me, given what we're seeing in that race is, is not, let's, let's, let's shut down all the public stuff. It is correct. We need to control interstate travel once exactly. the hotspot is identified. Exactly. Right. And, and, and I think from a, from a commerce perspective and a freedom perspective as well, it's not just better politically. I actually think it's better 
isn't it better policy? It, it it absolutely is, and this this is what I've been, you know, writing and tweeting about now for months. That it's it's not that you're going to catch this on a plane. It's that the plane takes people who are infected to an area where there aren't as many infected people. That that is the problem with air travel, right? So, look, if you're up to me, forget this oh, you know, show us a test and yeah, we'll still keep the flights going. And if the, you know, the, the, the captain of the flight, you know, that's how the new variant got into Japan, right? It was the, you know, it was the captain of right? all these flights and because they don't have the same, you know, requirements as on the, the, the COVID testing, <laughs> crazily enough. Yeah. So no, shut down international travel with the UK and shut down domestic travel in area but with with areas that have the, the, the new variant right but but again nobody's going to do that because that would require right the governor of new jersey say okay we're shutting down newark that would yeah. require cuomo saying yeah we're going to shut down laguardia and jfk man that ain't happening but that is exactly what I think needs to happen to control the, you know, what we can control for this new variant. Now, you mentioned the other part of this, the race we have against uh, the, this, this new variant with the vaccination policy. I am so happy to see the United States following the policy that the UK implemented a couple of weeks ago, which is, Forget the second dose. Forget forget reserving, you know, millions of doses for the booster shot. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, that booster shot will get your protection up to 90-something percent. Now, that first dose is going to give you 70-something percent. Give that, give one dose to more people rather than two doses to fewer people. So we're, we're, we're doing that. Great work. I was similarly thrilled and, and frankly surprised that this administration, admittedly, I think it's because- You're talking Trump, about the Trump administration. The Trump administration yeah. has now started, as of two days ago, saying, hey, states, you, you know, enough with the phase 1A, where we're giving it to healthcare workers and, and just, you know, long-term care I, facilities. And IT personnel at, uh, at you know, yeah. hospital management companies. Yeah, 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 exa exactly. And to, and to politicians, yeah. right? You know, forget that. All right, it's time to open it up now to people at risk. Anyone over 65, anyone under 65 with a pre-existing condition that would put them at, 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 at high risk for this. And unfortunately, some of the states that, as per usual, have led with the worst possible policy, um, like the state of New York. Like the state of New York. Have, have moved away from their horrifying policies. Like I, I, I think it was Cuomo who proposed that Giving you know going out of order would be a hundred thousand dollar fine. Was it to a? Oh, you lose your license. You lose <laughs> you. You know. So it's it's, it's we just... moved away from that. So thankfully, so I think. Yeah, but the but the but the the impetus, right? You know, the philosophy is still freaking there. Yeah. And and anyway, well, that's another discussion <laughs> for but, for sure. But it seems like you're saying we're moving on the right direction on the immunization on, front. On the on the yeah. immunization front, absolutely, and it's so important. I'm just, you know, crossing my fingers that we can get the J and J vaccine, showing some, some, you know, similar efficacy. Yeah. Uh, that we, because we, we really need that 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 J and J supply to come on here if we're going to win this race. 
my point is that we now also need to address the other side of this this race against time, right? That that we 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 do what we can on the vaccination side, but we absolutely need my view to take steps now to prevent this UK variant from hitting us like it has the UK, like it has Ireland. And the last thing I'll say about this is that the way you see exponential growth happen in the real world is really tough to see because for a long period of time, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Then it's case, case, case. Then it's cluster, cluster, cluster. And then boom, human beings tend not to notice it at all until it hits the cluster stage. And once it hits the cluster stage, the boom is coming. It's too late. It's too late to do anything about it. Right now, right now, we're still in the case, case, case phase of all this, right? Where we're talking about, okay, there were 12 cases in New York State yesterday. That's a snapshot of the past. I don't know what the new testing and the time, but let's say that was actually five days ago, there were 12 identified new cases. We are so close, I fear, to the first reported cluster of new variant cases. That's the inflection point that I'm praying we can avoid. Because once you hear the news report of, oh, there's a cluster of cases in Long Island or wherever of the new variant, it's, it's, it's too late. It's too late. So that, that's why I'm agitated. That's why I'm trying to publish and we're doing this podcast. Now is the time if we're going to take steps to try to prevent pouring gasoline onto a fire that frankly is already raging out of control in so many areas of the United States. And, you know, to be clear, the, the call is not a call to, to shut down the economy. It's not a call to, to damage small businesses. It's not a call to keep, um, you know, to, to, to restrict what's going on in, uh, you know, small towns and communities. It's a view that now is the time for us to rely on the geographic firewall yep. built into the United States the amazing work being done by researchers, pharmaceutical companies, and all the distribution logistics companies that are making this this vaccination happen to allow them the time to win by, yep. you know, now taking and making restrictions on both international travel and, and, and domestic travel and domestic travel universally or where there's, you know, once we've seen some of those initial cases. I, you know, I it's already out there in so many areas that when I say, you know, domestic travel, that means shutting down, you know, Southwest going out of, out of love field. Yeah. Right. It, it means, you know, you know, Houston airport, it means Denver airport. It certainly means, you know, all the Southern Cal airports. So, you know, it's a dramatic thing I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, but I do think we still have the ability to contain the new variant and to use, as you say, our geography in our favor for once. I, frankly, I, I, I think this will be another windmill that we're tilting at. I don't, I don't think this will happen at all, Well, and, but, and, but gosh, I hope it does. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I haven't thought about this as, as much as you have, and I, I'm probably not quite as far along. I'm thinking that it's, it's time to, to pull on, on, you know, more universal domestic restrictions, but I, I hear the argument you're making, and my bigger concern is the, is the latter point you made, which is that, there isn't a common knowledge or narrative that is emerging here. And right. And everything that we write about and that we talk about 
invariably comes back to this question of common knowledge formation and narratives. And there are no missionaries out there, whether it's from the CDC, whether it's Fauci. I don't even think we've seen much from, from Gottlieb, who, who you know, I think has, has done, a, at least in my opinion, a, a better job of, I agree. of communicating those things. And I, I don't feel like there is a narrative right now. And it's not that people need to be scared about it. It's, no, oh, here's a new variant and let's think about the, what the right policy is. That's right. That's right. Because and it, it, it is, as you were talking earlier, an issue of managing risk. Because if we do get an Ireland event here in the United States, it's not a 30x spike in cases no, we'll see. No, no, no. But it's a, it's a doubling of cases that we'll see. And I don't believe there's any metro area in the United States that could handle a doubling of cases in terms of what their, their hospitals and their IC units can support. Right. And if that hits, then you will get the lockdowns of freaking everything right. that no one wants. I, I'm saying that these are policies we can take now to prevent that kind of, man, lock it down. Yeah. And again, I, I think even these steps for example, of limiting domestic travel are going to prove to be politically impossible to accomplish. But I, I think this that's the best shot we've got right now. So maybe we wrap up with a, a little bit of, of markets connection because sure. you know, I think as, as we've been writing about since September, October, actually even a little bit earlier than that, we, we, we've been writing about the emergence of First, very inflationary focused language and narratives uh, with, within the coverage of central banks. Yep. Um, uh, and they're, you know, vis a vis financial markets. We, you know, I think even as, as early as November, certainly in December and going into January, we saw early signs of what we described as the first hawkish even mm-hmm. language. Now, it wasn't that that was the dominant narrative that, that we observed, but it was the first time we'd seen it kind of raise its head uh, in, in, in a very long time. And obviously, I think a lot of the, the the people listening will be familiar with some of what's gone on in in rates and some uh, other commodities markets in January, and some of the increasing narratives that I think have really risen to the fore around expectations for both rates and inflation. And so, you know, as we think about what the effects would be if we we achieved, or if the the market came to believe that there was common knowledge that in fact, you know, some of this was going to, to take hold in multiple large metropolitan areas. Yeah. Is it enough of a deflationary event or a per, is the perception of it likely to be enough of a deflationary event to derail some of the, the change in thinking that we've observed on the, the rates and inflation side? Oh, absolutely. So and, and this is what I'm watching for, you know, not just for a, <laughs> you know, a, 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 how to say this, you know, anyone who's paying attention to both the, the, the public health and, you know, cares about our country or the world looks at that in one respect. And, and, and you also have to look at, well, what does that mean for markets? <laughs> you know, and, and in both cases, I'm looking for, I'm hoping I don't find that report of the first cluster of cases from the new variant. I think that if, when, unfortunately, I think it's a when, not an if, I think when you see that 
announcement of a cluster of new variant cases, I think that's the inflection point where now everyone will be thinking and talking about this, where it will be what we describe as common knowledge that everyone knows now that everyone knows that the new variant is here and is a problem in the U.S. I think that's the inflection point for markets. And it is in both real world and market world, my view, an enormously deflationary event or news, meaning prices go down, number go down, not number go up, number go down. It matters when that event occurs because as we're describing, we're in that race with vaccination. If that event happens next week, that is so much more impactful and negative than if that cluster event gets reported 30 days from now. That's what I think we have to be watching for. And that's when I think you see an inflection point in its impact on markets. Well, here's to hoping that uh, a vaccine uh, wins the race here. Uh, But uh, from a risk perspective, uh, certainly have to take into account uh, you know, how that timing, uh, you know, impacts the, the you know, the, the end severity of the issue. So right on. So I'll, I'll, I'll close up the podcast. Just by hey, if you want to read more about this, of course, Epsilon Theory website. Um, we've, we write a lot about this stuff and uh, certainly encourage everyone to come to the website, read more and uh, hope you're signing up on iTunes and Spotify for, for this podcast. Thanks everyone. Thanks. Thanks.